Welcome to Night Cheese. This is Steven. And I'm Tim. And I'm Jared. And we want to welcome you to another week with us uh, in discussion. We are doing something just slightly different this week. Uh, this week's episode is titled, I Hate Myself for Loving You. Um, so we're doing a little bit of a gimmick this week. What we have decided to do is the three of us are actually bringing, we're going to be discussing air quotes, um, three different films tonight. We, I don't think we will go as as in-depth as you might be accustomed to hearing us on films, given the number that we're going to be talking about. But we decided to uh, talk amongst ourselves offline and discuss three films that, um, as a baseline, according to Rotten Tomatoes, uh, the movie film, the film aggregation website, has attributed a rotten score to, but all three films are um, favorites of ours in one way or another. Um, so we'll be discussing three different films, and uh, we're just going to go down the pike with those and relive them, maybe talk about why um, why the public, or at least the critics, didn't seem to enjoy it, why do we enjoy it, does it hold up, you know, all that good stuff. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was sitting here trying to think, is there anything else we really need to like, do we just want to jump in, I guess, because I, I don't know if there's anything else we wanted to talk about. Um, I didn't even get a chance to watch the other two movies, so I can talk about mine, but the other, the other ones, it's been a long time, so I don't know how much I'm going to remember. No yeah. problem. Um, I, I was the nerd who did the extra homework. I did <laughs> manage to watch all three um not that not I will say not like intently a lot of it was just background noise um but your two films I will say are more I think were more widely accessible than the the real really weird niche pick I, I picked um mine is the old I think mine is the oldest film maybe by a year actually Tim I think your movie and mine came out the same year okay um, both in 91 and then mm. Jared's came out in 99. So, yeah. um, since mine probably is going to have the least to talk about, maybe we can start with mine just to get it out of the way. Uh, if that's good with you guys. So, um, the film I chose is from 1991. It's a uh, comedy starring Sylvester Stallone. So first of all, that ought to tell you, um, <laughs> right away why it may not have been widely received with critical acclaim. Um, Sylvester Stallone as a leading man, um, in comedies doesn't always do particularly well historically. Um, but it's a film called Oscar. Um, it's Rotten Tomatoes rating was a cracking 12%. Um, and the, but, but I will, I will also point out the audience rating was 63. So there, wow. there is a really wide gap, like a 50% gap between critic and user on this. Um, I'm sorry. The, oh, it was, it was what? 53. You said 63, 63. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. When when you were talking about this, I, I just realized when you were talking about Sylvester Stallone comedies, I'm like, I wonder when Stop or My Mom Will Shoot came out. And I just so I just looked it up as you were talking about that. So it came out the following year. It came yes. out in 92. It's a point lower on the tomato meter. It's 11%. Oh, no. Um, but the audience was uh, significantly lower at 21%. Okay. <laughs> so, right. so it's, not like his, the same. it's not like his comedy career improves after this. Yeah. Yeah, this is certainly uh, not – this is not rock bottom for him uh, in terms of comedy. 
Um, which, by the way, stop or my mom will shoot's IMDb score 4.3. Um, <laughs> but this was a 6.6 on IMDb as well. Um, so it was directed by John Landis. Uh, you guys have heard of a, heard us talk about Max Landis, uh, a YouTuber and uh, brilliant movie pitch writer um uh on uh on the internet uh, this is his father um for, for those of you who are particularly young john landis uh was actually a pretty prolific director in the 80s um he directed the blues brothers um the original blues brothers and um gosh i want to say american werewolf in london I, I i don't quite remember but he was also well known in the music video community um he directed thriller uh, the Michael Jackson thriller video. So um, he's certain now none of those things are particularly related to, um, <laughs> to Oscar. Uh, it's, it's certainly a different thing. So Oscar, first of all, is, is based, um, it's based upon a French play of the, I think it's of the same. I, I don't really remember the name of the play. Sorry. I, I'm trying to, trying to find that really quick. So the source material and I think that's that's kind of the thing about this movie is that it's really a pretty wonderful idea, uh, in my opinion. So I, I guess I'll start with um, with why I like it first of all. Um, so I, I saw this movie on video. I think my brother, my older brother, got into it with his friends or something um, when they were in high school, and then uh, I think he rented it or bought it, like in a, like you know like one of those clearance sales that video stores would have when they're trying to get rid of their old inventory. And, um, it just became one of those VHS tapes that one of the few VHS tapes we owned at the time. So I just watch it over and over again, but it was just a, uh, I thought it was a really funny, uh, funny film. Um, so this is, I wish I could find the name of the play. This, it's going to bother me for the rest of the episode. But um, nevertheless, so th- this is a film um, where Sylvester Stallone is playing a prohibition era gangster. Um, and the <laughs> I feel even slightly embarrassed just saying his character's name. Um, his name <laughs> is Snaps Provolone. Yes, like the chief. Um, Snaps wow. is his gangster nickname. Uh, this is, yes, set in times. So. Um, it's it's very much um, it's very much like a stage play type comedy is what it is and so um, the the opening scene his father is on his deathbed his father played by the late Kirk Douglas and um, on his his dying wish is for his criminal son to have an honest life uh, so to quit quit a life of crime, try to be a legitimate businessman, you know, try to bring honor back to the family instead of shame. So he promises on his father's deathbed that, you know, he'll, he'll try to go straight. And so the movie takes place over the course of one day and it's his first day trying to go straight. Um, so his, his, uh, his gangster henchmen are now like his butler and his, um, like personal security guard. Um, and his some of his other henchmen are like like now his getaway driver is a chauffeur and there's a line about how his wife was really mad at the chauffeur because she dropped her off he dropped her off at mass and left the motor running um you know all these you know little the the hard transition of a life of crime into a life of uh the straight and narrow and so um Stallone is pretty much just playing Stallone the whole time. And I think that's where these things kind of start to fall apart is that they are, um, the acting 
is, you know, when you're young, when you're 10, 11 years old, you don't really recognize less than stellar acting, at least in Hollywood, you know, uh, I guess. And so he, um, gosh, it's really hard to explain the plot because there's a lot of moving pieces and that's where the comedy kind of plays in is a lot of confusion and stuff. It's, it's basically a really, um, overwritten, uh, sitcom trope. Uh, and I think we've, we've all seen, you know, if you've seen any episode of like a TGIF show back in the day or, uh, some other old, old time sitcom, um, some family sitcom where like some sort of MacGuffin, whether it's a bag, an envelope, a, a love note or something gets kind of passed around from character to character because it's been written anonymously and characters start thinking, start presuming the motivations of other characters uh, based on this thing they've read and can't tie it to each other. So there's, there's that kind of thing going on. Like his, you know, the, I'll, I'll start just a little bit at the beginning without going too deep into it. But like multiple things are happening that day, like on his first real day, he's he's got this itinerary built for himself where he, he's he's got a suit fitting. He's going to have a suit fitting with these two tailors who come to his house. One one thing that I thought was funny, and I don't know if this would have been in the original play or not, or they just did this because Sylvester Stallone is the main character. They brought in a linguistics teacher to help him speak like an intelligent person instead of sounding like Sylvester Stallone um, all the time. And that character is played by Tim Curry, um, who's hilarious <laughs> and also not somebody you necessarily expect to teach you how to speak um, either, which is pretty funny. Um, and then he is going to be his, his new legitimate business is going to be uh, a member of a board of directors of a bank, which obviously the bank is kind of like, I don't they're amongst themselves are kind of like, thumbing their nose at this gangster and think they're better than him. And, but they're desperate to have his money because it's prohibition and depression times. So, um, anyway, so there's a lot of distrust there too. And so that's what his day is set out to be. And he's already like really stressed out, but his day ends up starting where this young man who's this, who his is his accountant shows up and confesses that he wants to marry his daughter. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, he starts off by saying that he wants a raise. Um, and he's like, no, <laughs> like I'm not giving you a raise. And he's like, well, I fell in love with this girl. And he's like, oh, well, you know, that's great. I wish you nothing but the best. And then says that it's his daughter. And then he, he loses his, um, he loses his temper. And then, you know, one of his butlers tries to take a gun out and he's like, I told you we're not packing anymore. So it's like, you know, it's this, it's this constant tension <laughs> of, um, and it's, so of course it's all played for comedy anyway. It's, uh, it's, it's really, um, surprisingly intricately woven. Um, there's not really a, um, uh, I don't say for is, is complex, uh, plot, um, with, with so many moving pieces, there's really not that many plot holes, which is pretty impressive. Um, and so, um, I, I, I forgot to add while all that's going on, the police are staked out in a building across the street, watching people coming in and out of his house because they don't believe that he has given up the criminal life. So they're going to try to catch him in the act. And the police, um, like the head detective is led by Kurtwood Smith, uh, the, the dad from that 70s show. Mm. Uh, if you, anyway, so it's, um, anyway, the, the cast is great. Um, so Sylvester Stallone, his daughter is played by Marissa Tomei, not her best acting performance. She's a little over the top, but I think that's also the character 
to. Mm-hmm. Um, she's supposed to play an 18 year old uh, in 91. So I, I, I don't know. It's, it's not that far off, I guess. I mean, she played what, like a 29 year old aunt may in 2000. <laughs> so if there's an actress who can play young, it's definitely her, I guess. Um, she must've been pretty young at that point. I would. Yeah. I you think. know, as soon as that left my mouth, I was like, she was on a different world that, that Cosby show spinoff. Yeah. And she was a freshman in that show. And that was mm-hmm. in the very early nineties. Um, so, so she's, well, She's 56 now, so she would have been, around the time this was filming, it would, she would have been, I guess, about 26, probably. Okay, well, that's not it's not terrible. I yeah. mean, some people were in their 30s when they were playing high schoolers. Right, know, yes. So, so. Anyway, yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's pretty... It's it's pretty uh, pretty good. Uh, I'm trying to think of others uh, other characters. Chaz Palminteri. For the, I don't know if you, I I know that actor because he was in The Usual Suspects, which is one of my favorite movies um, ever. But he was he is one of the other bodyguards in the film. And um, anyway, it's 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 a lot of fun. Uh, so not a ton to talk about since um, <clears throat> since we're not we we didn't all watch it. But one thing I wanted to do because I wanted to do this for you guys is um, when you go to Rotten Tomatoes, you can get like a, just like a sampling of critic uh, reviews, like a quote from all of them, just from the main page. So I was going to try to find one of the negative quotes and see how much it actually made sense to the film. Um, unfortunately, this film is so old, they all say, quote, not available. <laughs> um, except for one, I guess somebody re- re-reviewed this in 2018. And he said, despite all the running around, the movie still feels slow, dragging sluggishly toward the end of its long 109 minutes. And I don't know, I disagree with that. I, I think it's, I, I, I don't think it's a slow film at all. I think, um, um, if anything, the constant changing of like allegiances and, um, you know, uh, MacGuffins exchanging hands and stuff. Part of that is actually kind of got it, kind of got it going. Um, someone else, uh, a, a user reviewer says, at least it's better than stop or my mom will shoot, which, <laughs> which, um, I will, I will agree with that. Um, it is. So listen, it's not Stallone's best. It might not even be Stallone's funniest. I mean, some of his action films, I think, have funnier moments uh, than that. Uh, but it's um, but it's still really good. I will leave one piece of trivia with it and then I'll let it alone. But the opening scene where uh, Kirk Douglas is on his deathbed, um, they have this gag where, um, you know, it seems like he has finally passed away. And... Um, or, or he's like, no, come closer, come closer. You know, like you see this in so many mm-hmm. comedic death scenes. And he, he comes in and he just smacks Stallone right in the face. And he's like, you've brought shame in the family. And um, and that's when, you know, he pleads with him to live a, live a life of the straight and narrow. And once he agrees to it, he finally dies. And Stallone is so upset, you know, and he leans over and then he wakes up and slaps him again. He goes, and that's a, so you want to forget uh, <laughs> like that. And, um, and that's the kind of movie we've got. Um, but anyway, apparently when they were filming that scene, when he slapped Stallone, Stallone was like, no, he's like, I want you to let me have it. Okay. Like, you know, I don't, I want this to look good and everything. And of course, you know, Stallone had made four or five of the Rocky movies at that point. So, I mean, you know, it's, you know, the tough guy and everything. And he was like, that was a mistake <laughs> asking <laughs> Kirk Douglas to, to let him have it. Um, and he's, I think the quote that was attributed with him to him was, I learned that day never to spar with Spartacus. <laughs> um, 
So um, I got I got a chuckle out of that myself. So um, Oscar, it, it is a um, it's it's enough of a, a niche film that it's not really locatable anywhere unless you want to rent it through Amazon Prime. Which I mean, listen, from my opinion, it, it's worth it to watch once. I have a lot of fun with it. Um, I was very surprised. My my childhood film library with my kids is very hit or miss um with some things like i was i was so sure they were going to love the goonies just like i did especially when i found out they loved stranger things and stuff and they had the nerve to tell me that that was just okay you know um and i, I don't know what where we went wrong in parenting to to make that mistake but uh, all that joking aside we watched oscar one time and they loved it like i mean they just the it's wow. and, and it's a um Considering how much I've spoiled my children on how many movies I've let them watch, it's a rarity for them to come back and ask to see a film that they've already watched again. And that's that was one of them. So, yeah, listen, even though it shares the name of the Academy Award and it's not even close to being ever nominated for one, um, <laughs> it's it's not really that kind of a film. It's it's just a really, really good. It's it's funny. And if you go into it knowing nothing about it, it's a it's a really amusing um, little story story and and i could see why it was based off of a play too it's really um it would work really well as a stage play too really really funny just the passing back and forth of everything and and the dialogue is really good too and, and it looks like just from what i was trying to, to search that the uh, that the play was was also just named oscar that's correct um so you know the play was named oscar and then it was actually adapted for a front for french film first and I think that film has a bit of a higher rating in critic and user reviews than Stallone's adaptation is. But so, yeah, it's it's been done a couple of times. Uh, and this is the only one I was really familiar with uh, at first due to, you know, my early exposure to it. But, yeah, it's um, so, yeah, it's it's uh, successful enough to have been rebooted. I mean, so that's that's at least something. Um, but yeah, it, wherever you can find it, it, it's, it's worth, if, if you're really just trying to find something obscure, I think in the heart of the, of, of our original intention of night cheese, Tim, like this is, this is a, this is a random thing. You know, when you're, when you're, when you're saying to yourself or with the person you share a Netflix account with, when, when you're like, I really want to find something I've never seen before or heard of before, but then you're, you're rolling the dice as to whether or not it's any good. This is a great find. So it's it's worth a it's worth a streaming rental um for sure. And even if you do buy it, it's not terribly expensive in terms of buying a digital film either. So um yeah, so that's Oscar of 1991 Sylvester Stallone and and crew. Uh check it out. Tim, do you want to go next? Yeah, sure. I'm excited that I'm sure what the one I'm, I'm going to be talking about is, is something that you both have, have watched. So I'm excited about that. So feel free at any moment if you want to jump in to do so. <laughs> I, I'm excited to talk about this one because I went for the longest time not realizing how uh, poorly critics received it. So I grew up on Hook, uh, came out in 1991, right? You know, I was six years old. So I was right at that time. I was like, that was, it was like kind of primed for that, that age. And I don't remember the first time. I saw it, but I do remember it might have been one of those films that I just saw all the time. Like, I just, I don't remember the, the, the number of times. It, it was just so frequent. And I, I just adored it. It um, came out, again, 1991. Steven Spielberg directed it um, and had a, a, just a really phenomenal cast. I mean, it had, you know, of course, Robin Williams, 
Um, but uh, Dustin Hoffman as Hook, Bob Hoskins as Smee, you know, Julia Roberts, Tinkerbell, Maggie Smith. As, I mean, it was just so so many fantastic. And I thought they all did did pretty great. But uh, but anyway, so I went, you know, almost all my life up until I started like my first job out of college. And um, it was in like, you know, media production. So everybody would like, you know, want to be film buffs. And and somehow we got to hook and a couple of people hated it. And I was we were, you know, the majority of us were shocked that these people didn't like it. And that's when I found out, you know, Rotten Tomatoes, uh, the score is twenty nine percent. Uh, versus 76% for like uh, users. And that was the moment where I was like, wait a minute, this, I just thought it was like this universally beloved film. And I was I totally didn't think wrong. Spielberg was capable of a score that low. On <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was, cause I mean, you think right after that, you know, came, you know, like Jurassic Park, then Schindler's like, I mean, it was like, he, I, at that point, I don't know, it's like he was just kind of like, just really knocking him out. But I, I was just, I was totally, I was baffled. So I was really excited to talk about this because I kind of wanted to rewatch it to see like, okay, maybe, you know, I was a kid and that's got a lot of, I mean, it's hard to call it. A, it's, it's, an, it's one of those movies. that's kind of, it's kind of, there's a lot of whiplash of like, there are like really dark kind of suspenseful moments, especially early on in the film, but then it kind of just throws you into like kind of slapstick comedy. So it's, it is, it is jarring. But you know, there's a there's enough for kids to love, and I I loved it. Um, but uh, but yeah, I have to say, so I kind of went in thinking, okay, I'm gonna be really let down now as an adult. But uh, despite you know just the the what you know problems that you might have with movies in general, like it, I still think it holds up really well. I think it's, I mean, there are definitely problems, and it it's a movie that's it's two hours and twenty minutes long, which is <laughs> so, and they could have easily cut at least thirty minutes in, of this in film. nineteen two hours and twenty minutes long in, in nineteen ninety one. Yeah. Yeah, that was not, you know, that was and there was definitely a lot of like scenes that just did not need to be in there whatsoever. Um, but I still overall, overall, I really liked it a lot. And um, I don't know, I, I can share more, but I also wanted to get I was just curious. I'm sure you guys have seen it. How if you yeah liked it growing up? Like, I don't know what were your thoughts on that. I'm really, really intrigued. Jared, you want to go first? Uh, sure, mine will be quick because it's it's <laughs> maybe been almost thirty years since oh, no. I've seen it. So. <laughs> oh, no. You and are I'm now not... Robin Williams in the first half of the movie. Yeah, right. Right. So I do remember it being one of those movies that uh, friends of mine at the time just loved. And I, you know, I didn't see it in the theater. I think I've just like seen it and I may have never even seen it in one viewing either as much <laughs> as just like parts at, you know, at a time, which is, you know, the best way to view movies. Um, so I, I remember people loving it, but it, it didn't, it was one of those things for me that it never really, I don't know, it never really latched on. Um, but you know, if we, if we get a Snyder cut, <laughs> a four hour you know oh, because that's a whole different oh, story it focuses oh, more gosh. on Tinkerbell <laughs> as the main character it's, you know <laughs> so the, I, I don't have unfortunately a ton of contributions and also Tim thanks for repeatedly setting this up with I'm sure you guys have oh. seen this <laughs> way to just lay the pressure on oh, there for no. me to sorry <laughs> just kidding no, no I know I should have known better though but th yeah this is one of those times I just in my mind i just assume every i don't know why but 
I'm like, yeah, everybody's had to have seen this. It's Hook, you know. But well, <laughs> every time every time Tim says that, I'm just like shrinking. Oh no! <laughs> For what it's worth, I think it was a safe assumption to think a Spielberg '90s film. It's, it's fine. I'm teasing. Yeah, because of the part of the collective consciousness. Um, yeah, you know, I saw it in the theater. Um, I, the more I think about it, I watched it again recently, and I think I just came to. The conclusion, and I, I know Peter Pan is not originally a Disney property, but that's that's probably where most of us came to know of the story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just going to say for this factor, I've, I've found the older I've gotten and the more I've revisited some of these properties through one medium or another, there are just some quote-unquote Disney franchises some grab me more than others and yeah. some I have a, a deeper connection to. And I don't think, I think I learned through this and other tellings of this, that um, Peter Pan as a story, I don't think is one that I was ever super close to, uh, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, and because I don't know, I, I don't know, but, but, um, as far as hook goes, I do remember seeing it. I remember the toys, uh, cause, cause, cause everything had toys and action figures. Um, <laughs> yeah. so I, I do remember that, that set, uh, and some of those toys at the time I had to have been like nine or 10 years old, probably when, when this came out. So right around that, that target demographic. And, um, <clears throat> I, I think a few things about this movie actually uh, that I'll add on. One, yeah, I thought it was too it was too long. Um, I don't know where you cut out. Yeah, uh, in that movie, but but I, definitely too long. Um, I I think it's funny that um, the older I got, the older the older I get, I I actually was a little more entertained by the first half of the movie mm-hmm. as a as, as a grown up now mm-hmm. than I was as a kid yeah. who was definitely into the Neverland part of the movie. Like, um, you know, up until very recently, I'd say I'd almost just kind of want to skip past the first part of the movie. Um, all this, I felt like, man, this is a whole lot of exposition, <laughs> you know, to, to mm-hmm. get to the point of like, all right, get him to Neverland already. Yeah. So you can relearn how to be Peter Pan. But actually <laughs> like, and, and maybe there is too much of that, but the execution of all those scenes is really good. Um, and I like, um, like, like they do, it's, it's kind of subtle. It doesn't hit you over the head with a frying pan, but of just how much, uh, Robin Williams character had lost himself. Um, I I paid a little closer attention to that and they do that. They do that, you know, corporate scene where he's surrounded by, corporate minions and walking around the office and they're all following him while he's like doing business as he's walking, you know? And, um, there's a shot where there's a line where, you know, later on he's going to give that speech for grandma Wendy, um, at the banquet, which is actually really a really touching scene too, in retrospect. But at that moment in the beginning, his assistant is writing the speech for him. 
Like he's not even writing that speech. She doesn't even know who she is. Like, and so he's not even, he's not even personally invested in her. And, you know, they say that, you know, she'd been asking him for 10 to 12 years to come visit her and he never would because he's afraid to fly. Ha ha. You know, um, (laughs) and you know, not invested in his son's life. Like he would go to see his daughter's play, but he wouldn't go to his son's baseball game, uh, and stuff. And, um, it didn't even, it never occurred to me ever until this viewing is when they get there and his son, who's just being like a nine-year-old boy, you know, but he's so annoyed and resentful towards his son and all of his childlike antics. Um, and he's just always put over the edge by every little thing he does. He explains to Wendy who, by the way, Maggie Smith, she looks older then than she does now. Like, I don't know if they put a ton of makeup on her. Say, I have to say it was, because at the time she was, I don't think she was that old. But I will say, I will say in this film, this is the one film that made me really surprised. Like, anytime I saw her in a film after this, I was like, man, she was old in that film. How was she even still alive? But I think, I think it was just makeup and I don't think she was yeah. as old, you know, because, but I mean, she's, you know, still doing films now. But I remember then sure. I was like, how is she? You know, but I, I mean, know. that was just as a kid, you know, I mean, I just was always shocked. To see. <laughs> I was about to say, she looks like the lady from Downton Abbey then. And it was, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Um, yep. But he starts explaining that he does like corporate acquisitions and mergers. And she's like, you're a pirate. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> he is. He has become a corporate pirate. And like, so like not only that, not only has he gotten become a grown up, not only has he lost everything, he's also turned to the dark side, basically, you know, <laughs> um, which yeah. is just such a such an interesting thing. You know, another thing too. I, I don't know. I don't know how far this will go, and then and then I'll, I think I'll I'll let it go. But what's well, t- two more things? Uh, one, I feel like there there, and maybe Jared can agree with me on this. There's this sort of notion that can be found in professional wrestling that is when you have kind of a silly idea or a silly premise, it will always fail unless the people assigned to execute it fully commit to how silly it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you see that with really silly wrestling characters or stories and it's dumb, but everybody loves it because someone just goes in all the way for it. Yeah. And, um, and I think there is this spectrum in this film of of acting talent and and uh, and experience. You have your Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman's all the way on one end. Which, by the way, everything that happened between Dustin Hoffman and Bob Hoskins was gold oh, in yeah. this movie. I, yeah. I absolutely love Hook. Like when he gets his wig torn off at the end, and he's like, "You took my hands." you can give me my dignity at least or whatever. I forget what he says, yeah. but he's like, you at least owe me that. Give me my hair back. You know, that, that, that was, um, it was really funny. Um, all the way down to the lost boys of the ones who were probably just kids that they hired who had little to no acting experience at the time, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. Somewhere in the middle, the acting is a little eh, eh, to me, like yeah. um, in the movie, but Williams and Hoffman and Hoskins and them yeah. are, are, are fantastic. And also I really, really liked the little kids. Yeah. Like when they were um, in the really tender moments where Peter was vulnerable and they're the ones that coming up to coming up to him saying, I believe in you, you know, it really sounded like a kid who actually believed in something, you know? Um, and so 
that sort of all in factor, either they were completely innocent and it's almost like they were just being real or they were such good actors. They were going in. It was great. And yeah. pretty much everything else in the middle was kind of mm-hmm. hit or miss. From me. Yeah. And I yep. think my biggest hit or miss, not as an actress in general, but something about this movie, I don't know, was Julia Roberts as Tinkerbell. Mm-hmm. I, I can't put my finger on it. It. Yeah, but, her, I, this may be part of it. I don't know, but her whole the whole side plot of her, you know, kind of her kind of confessing her love for Peter Pan weird. and like grow, you know, I, yeah. And it was it was very unnecessary. And it almost kind of made her character just only to serve Peter Pan. Like it, it kind of I don't know. It just made her less of a, well, her own flirting individual, with you know? a married Peter Pan who's there for his kids. <laughs> yeah, is just a really weird. Yeah thing i mean and i could and i'm not trying to take any away from julia roberts because i do think she's a really good actress but she was probably like the hollywood it girl at that time because mm-hmm. Pr- pretty woman came out before this i think and yeah. like maybe a year or two years before this i think so yeah. so she probably would have been like really close to the height uh, not maybe the height of her popularity, but one of the heights of her popularity. Yeah. So I could see, I could see how the studio maybe just wanted a name mm-hmm. in there and yeah. threw her in there. But I don't know. It just mm-hmm. her, her p- specific type of dramatic talent and her, and her, and her comedic style. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause she can be really funny too. Um, and, and other roles. I, I just yeah. didn't seem to fit this story, you know? Yeah. It just fell out of place. And that whole thing, that whole side plot was just weird, even weird for a Robin Williams movie. (laughs) And it's like for a movie that's over two hours, all that could have been cut. And you still could have had done something else to make her a more interesting, you know, more kind of her her own person instead of just pining for adult. Yeah, Peter Pan. I don't know. It was just, it was strange. Yeah, I agree with that. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Hook. Yeah. Oh, but there was oh, one other thing I was going to say. Mm-hmm. Just an emotional attachment I had to this movie was, um, uh, I mean, spoiler alert for a 30-year-old movie, everybody, and if you've never seen Hook. But Hook um, Hook kills Rufio in the final fight. And um, before, and it's, it's interesting, like, the way the blocking of the fight is set up because the lost boys had basically won the war. Like I was, I was paying attention to it this time when it happened because, um, the lost boys had command had like taken over the ship and the pirates had, and literally on screen, the pirates had just surrendered right when hook kind of goads Rufio into the fight. So like one Rufio didn't have to take the fight Two, pan. Uh, Peter had, had left the ship to go rescue his daughter. Cause he heard her screaming. So, you know, he's chosen his, his his children mm-hmm. over as lost boys, which is what yeah. he should have done. Mm-hmm. But in that moment, he it's it's very like Spider Man, like superhero y kind of tragedy, like you can't save everybody kind of thing. And 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 that sort of thing. And and when when he kill when when he kills him, you know, two things happen. One Rufio says, you know, if I ever had a dad, I, I wish he he could be like you. Um, which is, you know, all of these uh you know, all these boys are so spiteful and resentful about rules and parents and stuff. Um, and that's the first time Rufio shows any kind of vulnerability in that way. And, um, the other kid, 
uh, Thud, the the little chubby kid, uh, <laughs> is great too. And that reminds me, like he he was kind of an inspiration for Peter to learn how to fly again. Like he says, you know what I remember? You know what my happy thought is? It's my mom. And like, and when I sat back, I was like, man, that seems like an out of place thing for a lost boy to say. But um, I thought it was neat that he chose times to sort of integrate what family still means to people. Um, but anyway, I've, I've already gotten way off the, no. the reservation here. No, the thing no. I was going to say about Rufio is I think that's the first time as a kid in a kid's movie that I saw the death of like an emotionally traumatic death in a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, on on the screen with somebody who you were, you're kind of conditioned that the good guys are going to survive and live to, to fight another day or whatever. Even if the bad guys, if the bad guys might die or they might just escape, you know, or whatever, you know. But yeah. um, but the good guys aren't going to get harmed in a way that they can't recover from. Yeah. And I think that was the first time I really saw that. And I remember being like, oh, I don't yeah. like this at all. Like this is really sad because um, this was before, like you know. I guess the Lion King, uh, or the, yeah. was, you know, that kind of stuff. But, but yeah, you know, is it, and, I, and then the more I thought about it, I was like, Oh man, that is a, yeah, yeah that was a watershed moment for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you said what you did. Cause it kind of reminded me of some, um, like the, not, I don't think this is necessarily contradictory, but it was interesting in the film to have that kind of push and pull. Like, you know, the, one of the main ideas is this, you know, Robin was kind of forgot who he was, forgot, you know, his childhood and that one of the ideas is that to kind of embrace your inner child, you know, that embracement of like, of, I don't know, that sounds weird, like fun or embracing childhood in order to, you know, to not be this like uptight, stuck up, you know, wealthy lawyer anyways. But another part of it is, you know, realization of how significant family is, which kind of requires growing up and requires not being on Neverland. I don't know. It was an interesting kind of push and pull. I don't, I don't, I think there's something down the middle where they both kind of can work together, but um, watching it again, it was an interesting idea. There's kind of two, two almost opposing ideas, not quite, but, um, but uh, yeah, it was interesting. It definitely, I mean, it was definitely not without its problems. And um, I actually went, I was curious like why critics didn't like it. So I did look up like Ebert's review and most of it, I really was a lot of the, you know, he thought that he really kind of expected, what did he, what was his quote? That, let's see, no effort is made to involve Peter's magic in the changed world he now inhabits, and little thought has been given to Captain Hook's extraordinary persistence in wanting to revisit the events of the past, which I don't know if, I don't know, I don't know, because I think a lot of it's just him finding that magic again, you know, Peter Pan, but, um, and then he went on and got kind of criticized a lot of the, the sets and things, because he said it looked very much like, which I will say, everything was really, I thought really elaborate, and maybe it was like so elaborate that you, you know, kind of went into like set like you I don't know but I really liked how you know the design of like the ships and the but he said it was all just too much too red and brown and when he thinks of Neverland he thinks of like beautiful you know very colorful beautiful Mm. and he said this film he didn't think it was as pretty as it should have been I don't know but to me I don't know if that's like knocks against I don't know but um, it sounds like somebody who already had their own imagination yeah. of what it was supposed <laughs> to look like. You know, just, yeah. yeah, which the film does encourage you to use your imagination. So you know, I can't. Right. I don't know if I can fault him. <laughs> no, yeah. but um, but yeah, but I was curious about what was it exactly that people people uh, weren't fond of about this film. But anyways, yeah, there is kind of I can see how it would be interpreted as kind of mixed messaging 
between being childlike and 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 being a grown up, I guess. But I think I don't know. I mean, it is very clear that like he had no he had absolutely no sense of lightheartedness in his life yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and he was also demanding that from his children too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, yeah. who were at best adolescent, not even pre, they were pre adolescent, oh, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, I think that, you know, I, I, uh, I got a chuckle out of it when they're, they're on the air, the airplane to go over to London and his son is just bouncing a, a baseball off the window of the mm-hmm. plane. And yeah. again, he's just being an obnoxious nine year old, which is, <laughs> which is what they do. Yeah. You know, like, um, and he's just like, would you stop it? You're acting like such a child. And he goes, I, I, am, a I, am, I am a child. <laughs> yeah. And like, yeah. That's kind of the, kind yeah. of the point, you know? Um, yeah. And they, he said something at the end of the film, like, you know, I can't remember now. I wish I could remember the quote, but like, you know, life, is its own adventure, something like that. So I can kind of see it maybe being more of an idea of um, embracing the adventure of life and how, you know, as an adult, probably it's this character just kind of life had become, you know, was nothing, looked nothing like any sort of adventure. It was not exciting. He just had become monotonous. And so I could see like that, like growing up is part of kind of embracing that adventure. I don't know, but yeah. Well, he'd become like Hook, you know, because yeah. Hook, Hook even said, you know, death is the only adventure that's left, mm-hmm. um, which is why he was so torn on war. And, you know, he wanted war. He said, you know, he wanted, he felt entitled to his war with Peter yeah. Pan. And that's, you know, one of the things he wanted. And I think that was a nice little bookend to show that he really had changed course, uh, literally and figuratively yeah. speaking. So. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so I know I went on a, a long time about this, but, uh, Hook is on Netflix, so if you haven't seen it, uh, feel totally check it out um, and let us know what you think as well. Because I'm cu- I'm curious now. I don't know. It's just one of those things, those illusions I had growing up that it was just universally beloved, and to find out that it's not, I was it, it was I don't know. It was a, just a weird moment finding that out. Also, I would like to um, before we uh, close the close the door on this particular conversation. <laughs> point out two really clever cameos in the film when the police are called when the children are abducted the detective is played by phil collins <laughs> which is excellent i had just gotten done doing a deep dive on the song in the air tonight uh not long before i watched this and i was like wait a minute um and then uh in on the ship the first time you see the pirate ship there is a pirate who is singled out for being a traitor and they're made an example out of and that is glenn close and pirate makeup yeah that was great yeah (laughs) an odd scene i will say it was a very strange scene but i you know i didn't know that until this time around yeah before i'd never i could i'd never thought of that yeah so random that's so funny Mm mm-hmm I'm now I'm now more interested to go watch it after having this. Oh, talk. No. Yeah. <laughs> That's why this podcast exists <laughs> to drive people to content that we're in no way getting paid for. <laughs> okay, well, uh, Jared, it's time to bring us home. Uh, let's oh, yeah. let's let's tread into deep waters. 
Well, the, the <laughs> nice thing about mine with Deep Blue Sea is that you don't necessarily, I don't know that you even need to have seen it. I mean, it's a, it's a shark movie uh, about genetically <laughs> altered sharks trying to eat people. You can probably basically imagine kind of what happens with the plot there. Um, although, you know, I, I joke about it, but I, I do think the reason I like it is because it does some things differently and it, and it subverts some tropes, uh, which you, you probably wouldn't really expect for, for the kind of over the top movie it is. But, um, to give a little background on it, um, let's see, it was directed by Rennie Harlan who did, um, Die Hard 2. Um, he did Cliffhanger with Sylvester oh, okay. Stallone. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, he did, uh, and I didn't, I didn't know this until just now looking through the little list here that the director of Die Hard 2 was also the director of 12 Rounds with oh. Steven's all-time favorite wrestler, John, John Cena. Cena. Um, and then his career sort of kind of, kind of went into TV, more TV episodes um, towards, uh, let's see, I guess around... 2011 or so he started doing some stuff like burn notice and white collar some of these shows on uh usa um and then he's he's done he's got a movie coming out this year that is the misfits um it's got pierce brosnan and tim roth uh so i don't really know I don't know what all that's about, but anyway um so it was directed by him and then it stars uh, Thomas Jane as the main character, uh, Saffron Burroughs, who I, I, I'm like, where, where else has she been since then? Cause I actually liked her pretty well in this movie. Um, she hasn't done a lot of stuff that I recognized except she played Victoria hand in agents of shield, which I did not even realize, you know, at 20, 20 years plus wearing glasses, plus a, you know, either a wig or her hair is different. I just didn't recognize her. Um, Samuel L. Jackson in, one of his most memorable roles, I think for not, you know, (laughs) not because of his acting really. Um, and then LL Cool J who plays a memorable, memorable character. Uh, and then some other people, Stellan Skarsgård's in it. And, and then Michael Rappaport, uh, who was most recently in the news for a, uh, social media feud with Kevin Durant. Um, so, okay. Yeah. So, Um, so that's kind of the setup for it. The movie is basically Jurassic Park meets Jaws, um, something (laughs) along those lines. So the, the setup is, um, that they're using sharks. Uh, the, the character that, uh, Susan, uh, is the character that Saffron Burroughs plays, uh, her and Stellan Skarsgård's characters are scientists trying to cure Alzheimer's, and um, so it kind of it's kind of sub- subverts the trope of like evil business lady, uh, where she's she's not just you know looking at the bottom line here. Her father died of Alzheimer's, and so she has a, a personal connection to to trying to cure this. So the way they do this is by they're trying to harvest. Uh, like brain fluid from sharks, but they can't get enough. And so they make the sharks brains bigger. So, you know, nothing, nothing good's going to come out of smarter <laughs> as, sharks. As one would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So as, as one would, you need more shark. Right. Brain right. Fluid. Nothing good is going to come of bigger 
uh, smarter sharks. Um, <laughs> and, and they, you know, and I kind of laughed, like going back and looking at it again, where it's, they set up this pen for them in the middle of the ocean. Like they don't take them into some sort of facility or anything like that. We just set it up in the middle of the ocean where it's nice and convenient for them to escape out into the, uh, open water. It's liberal I, thinking for you, Jared. Yes, it is. So I'll give them a pass on that and say, and just add in my own qualifier for that to say that they tried it and that the sharks didn't survive in facilities that they needed to be. You know, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give them a <laughs> mulligan on that one and and give my own um, disclaimer for that. So, um, so that is the 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 kind of the initial setup for it, and so then they basically a shark escapes, uh, at the beginning of the film. And that's kind of how we were introduced to it all as a shark attacking a boat and then they catch it and bring it back in. And so then the company that's funding this research, uh, says, yeah, you've got whatever, you know, 48 hours, 72 hours, whatever to prove this works or we're shutting you down. So Samuel L. Jackson's character is the, you know, head of the company or whatever. And he flies out to this thing again, kind of like the setup for Jurassic park coming for a weekend, a storm comes in. Um, <laughs> and, but then it's not even actually the, the storm that, uh, causes the shenanigans. Um, a, a guy, the, the Stellan Skarsgård's character gets his arm bitten off by one of the sharks when they're trying, when they're harvesting the, the fluid. And so then they have to have a helicopter come in to airlift him out. I don't know if they would really fly a helicopter into that. That is some, it was some pretty rough weather. I don't know that yes. a helicopter would even attempt that. Um, but they do, they, the, the, um, what is it called? A wind, um, the, the thing that like the, the, uh, brings the cable up a winch or yeah. yeah. Winch. Uh, so that malfunctions, they drop his gurney into the pool of where the sharks are and the shark with his bloody stump of an arm with his bloody stump of an arm. the sharks man, one of the sharks manages to grab it, bring the helicopter down into the tower. There's giant explosions. And then, so all the people that are down at the bottom of the underwater facility, then it's kind of this game of them trying to get to the top with everything crumbling and sharks getting in, um, and all this stuff. But, uh, part of what I like about the movie is that they, they did, again, they did, they did try, I think to, in some places subvert some tropes and in some places, do just something different with, with the visuals. So there's a shot of where they're all in this like underwater control room and you see something coming at the screen. You're like, what is that? And even Samuel L. Jackson's character is like in, in his Samuel L. Jackson fashion, you know, <laughs> says something to the effect of what somebody tell me what that is. And, <laughs> and so then you realize it's Stellan Skarsgård's character still alive because he got, he got an oxygen, I guess he had an oxygen tank put on him, not just an oxygen mask. I don't know, um, which makes no sense now that I'm thinking about that. Um, but he's somehow still alive being pushed towards the window by the shark that's that's using his gurney as a weapon to sling it into the glass window, which, you know, is like a foot of glass 
foot thick bulletproof glass to, you know, um, break it open to get in there to them. Uh, so I'm like, ah, you know what? That's actually kind of cool. I actually kind of, I actually kind of <laughs> like that. So, um, and, and so then the rest of it is, you know, again, them trying to get up back to the surface. And so then we get to, um, and so, you know, so basically they're, they, they start bickering, uh, once it comes out what the, the two scientists did that they made the, the sharks smarter. Um, so at that point that they're, they're sort of bickering a bit and, um, and Samuel L. Jackson's character, they've been dropping these breadcrumbs about how he, I guess, survived some plane crash or avalanche or plane crash, then an avalanche. I, there was an avalanche involved. Um, and and how he's this famous survivor, you know. And um, I can't remember what the movie was uh, that was kind of like that. Uh, alive. Like, alive, that's, that's what it was, of where these people survived, and but they had to eat, you know, eat someone, I think, who had already died. Um, but his story is a little bit different in that, like, seven of them survived it, but then... They somehow they turned on each other and only five of them came out. So they don't they don't ever give you all the details of that. But you, you get the gist of it that he's this survivor. And so maybe he's going to be the one to um, lead them through all this, except they get to this one room where their plan was to to get this little submarine and take the little submarine to the top. And it's in this sort of open water pool. It's pressurized. Uh, but the water goes back to the, um, you know, the, the indoor areas where the sharks are kept. So he's standing there near it and you sort of get this little subtle line from, um, Thomas Jane's character Carter, where he's like, I wouldn't stand that close if I were you just saying, but it's, it's, you know, it's pretty subtle. And, and so then Samuel L. Jackson gets into his speech Um, and, and it's a dramatic speech and he's like, you think water's fast? You should see ice, which, and first of all, I'm like, no, I don't think that's true. I think water would be faster than ice. I mean, water's the liquid liquid as opposed to the solid liquid as opposed opposed to a solid. I think it's just got a path of least resistance. Um, I don't think, I think you're, yeah, I think you're overplaying your own experience there guy. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, but he goes into this whole speech and he's like, it moves like it has a, I wrote down part of his speech. He says it moves like it has a mind, like it knows. This was my favorite point. This is, this is the line right here. <laughs> like it knows it killed the world once and got a taste for murder. <laughs> <laughs> I cracked up at that line. It, it's, See, there is no there is no water age. There's an ice age, so that's why it's more dangerous. Right. Well, and, and yeah, it, it's just such an absurd, it, but it's it's a funny, over-the-top, absurd line. But now in thinking about it, like, I almost kind of wish, you know, one of the other characters had just kind of riffed, like, oh, yeah, well, water killed the world with Noah's flood. It got it. It got a bigger taste for her. And then they have this little. That's in God's Not Dead 4. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, you know, it, it, so he's standing there delivering this, um, this, this big speech. 
And then all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, like right at the climactic moment of the speech, this shark just comes out of the water out of nowhere and grabs him, drags him back into the water. Another shark grabs the other half of him, and then they just rip him in half and, and eat him up. So, um, <laughs> Which, in fairness, I think is one of the best jump scares in movie history. I think so. Yeah. Because you, I mean... At this point in in 2021, may, maybe it's maybe it's a little more anticipated. But for my money, like it, that was I think that was the first legit hard jump scare I ever had, where I didn't even have a sense that anything was going to happen. Right, right, yeah. Um, and you know, and I mean, you know, you think about his his character, and you just assume that if he doesn't survive, at least he's going to be you know, one of the ones that sort of make it to the, make it to the end. So, you know, it's interesting, Jared, is the nineties were kind of filled with those sort of casting. Yeah. So subverting of expectations. I always think back to an action movie. I want to say in 93 or 94 called executive decision mm-hmm. that yes. had Kurt Russell and Steven Seagal in it. Yeah. And Kurt Russell was, was cast as like this hapless FBI agent who didn't know how to do anything. Think yeah. like Jimmy Woo from WandaVision or something. Right. And, and, Steven Seagal was Steven Seagal because he wouldn't allow himself to ever be cast as anything <laughs> other than Steven Seagal. Right. And he dies like 20 minutes into the movie. And I was like, wait, what? This isn't going <laughs> to be Steven Seagal walking through this hijacked airplane, taking down terrorists one at a time. Yeah. And so, yeah, you know, you get the idea that your name brand, you know, top level stars are going to be around at, at the end, at least. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So while there, well, uh, they're, they're, so part of it, it, again, is some of the, some of the visuals I just thought were kind of cool. There, there's one part where they're climbing a shaft. Um, the water is coming up from the bottom and then as it, as it's flooding in, it, the reason it's flooding in is because the sharks break through at another level. And so there's not only is water coming up after them, but the sharks are in the water, one shark at least. And then up top, is like raining fiery debris down on them because so they're caught between uh you know this um you know fiery hellscape up top and then (laughs) and then shark infested waters down below um so while all this is going on with those characters ll cool j plays one of the main characters but he's on like his own little separate side quest because he's a chef and they really went into trying to make this a unique character where they he's gave like him a lot of gimmicks. They gave him a lot of gimmicks. Um, he's, he's like a chef who used to be a pastor. Maybe uh, yeah. I think, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he, he's a chef who used to be a pastor, but he stopped being a pastor because he likes drinking too much. Is that right? Or I, I don't I, remember. What I watched him really from. Yeah. I watched it really fast, and so yeah. he he deconstructed, and yeah, um, I don't know what happened. Right, right. So I think it's something. But you haven't even gotten to the best part yet about LL Cool J. Well, there's multiple. I don't know. There's multiple the bird. Best parts. Yeah, the bird. Yeah, he's got a bird that that it curses at him. He was Reverend Devon and Coco Beware at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, true, <laughs> true. So, so he's got this bird sidekick that that curses at him. Um, unfortunately, the bird 
um, meets a tragic end at the hand of a shark. Um, and then LL Cool J escapes by diving into this is this is all happening in their facility kitchen and he escapes by diving into his oven um where the shark's trying to get to him and these sharks that are like this is this is one of the funny things about the movie uh, the absurd things about it is like these sharks can destroy like i don't know how many feet thick uh of metal doors they can just blow these suckers open um, to get into the facility, but then like he's having trouble getting to getting through the glass, uh, in a, of an oven to get to, <laughs> well, LA. you know, the, those oven doors are pull and the shark kept pushing. <laughs> that's true. That's, so true. that's, that's, that's probably true. what it was. That's probably what it was. So in the process of all this, the shark turns the oven on when he's hitting it, he hits the knob. And so then LL Cool J is in danger of being cooked in his own oven. And so then he uses an, <laughs> it, this is not as absurd as it sounds when you're watching it. It's somehow <laughs> still sort of amusing. So he takes this ax. I don't remember where the ax came from. He's got an ax and, and he starts like working his way up to the top part of, cause I guess yeah, it's, it's like a, a dual oven or something. A dual, yeah. Dual oven, double oven, whatever. Um, so he gets up there and then dives over the shark. And because the gas has been turned on, uh, he's able to light his lighter and throw it and blow up the shark, uh, to kill one of the sharks. So, that was all going on as this like little side quest up until this point, up until then he kind of meets up with the main characters as he frees them, as he gives them an out from that um, chamber that they're in. My, can I interrupt for a second? Yeah, go right ahead. That, yes. that was one of the few scenes I saw when I revisited it today Yeah, is when, you know, these guys are being terrorized by these sharks, you know, right. Right. and it's like four jaws sharks like coming after you, these guys. And when he dives over him, he gets his keep in mind, he's in like shoulder or waist high water. Right. Um, and he when he dives over the shark, he gets his way to the door, he turns around, and before like throwing his lighter, he waits long enough to stare at the shark and says, You ate my bird. Yeah. yeah. And then throws it. I'm like, I I understand one liners in action movies, but like <laughs> like just get out. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> you ate my bird. Yeah. And, right. and like that part of it sort of starts making, you know, I mean, he's, he's the comic relief character. Well, he and Michael Rappaport to a lesser extent um, are the comic relief characters. And then it, like it, it kind of just gets more absurd towards the end. Like there's a, there's a certain, like even with everything that's happening, you can sort of buy it and in, in the context of the movie. Um, but then as we get towards the end, uh, we get towards the end. And so it, they're trying to, it gets down to just a handful of them. Um, and, um, I'm sorry, I forgot to name the, the actress's name, but anyways, the character, Susan, who's one of the, the scientists, she, she tries to get her, her data to salvage something. Um, and, and, and it, it also has that, that, um, I think you guys maybe were talking about with, with, um, hook where it kind of goes back and forth between like serious 
oh, this is something that could cure Alzheimer's and save all these people. And, you know, we need to do this. You know, even the people who have died, it'll be for something if we can salvage this data. And so it goes back and forth between like, you know, actually some serious scenes and absurdity. Um, but we, we finally get to the end and it's just those three. It's Susan Carter and LL Cool J. Um, and then the shark is about to, to get out to escape the facility because they realize that the shark has been trying to sink the facility so that it can, so that it can get out. Um, because the, the mesh up top is just, the, is just uh, like regular steel or whatever. But again, the shark can't bust through that immediately like it was able to burst through the, you know, yeah. thick metal doors, whatever. Um, so in the end, uh, it, it's it's more absurdity of where Susan tries to lure the shark and uh, Carter ends up trying to jump into the water to save her and she dies he gets caught on the shark and it's LL Cool J's job to shoot the shark with this like dynamite, um, sort of spear gun. Uh, he ends up hitting Carter through the leg. Uh, Carter manages to get caught on the fencing and get ripped off. I'm pretty sure that would have just ripped his leg off or at least torn an artery out. Um, but it manages to just free him and then they, they blow up the shark. So, so the ending really, whatever else, no matter how absurd the rest of the movie is, the, the ending really puts it over the top. And, <laughs> and, and what I laughed at this time was I had forgotten is that they, they immediately then go into, they, they sort of embrace that. And the show, the, the movie ends on a song that I had never paid attention to the lyrics prior to this but but the opening line of the closing song is my hat is like a shark's fin and it's ll cool j who who recorded it and and the song is deepest bluest um which i have not listened to yet i'm so glad you brought you're bringing this up (laughs) yeah i don't know if you have anything to, to add on that, but I, I haven't had a chance to listen to the full song. I didn't go, I didn't finish the, the credits, but as soon as I saw that, I'm just like, wow. Okay. No, that was, I mean, no, no, it, it was definitely, oh gosh. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> and well, and the, and, and I looked it up, I Googled it again. I haven't played it yet, but on Google, um, when, when, when the song comes up, it's got the YouTube preview window and it's LL Cool J in part of the set from deep blue sea, like this pool of water where I think maybe the one where Samuel, L. J- I don't know if it's the one where Samuel L. Jackson got eaten or, or the one where Stellan Skarsgård got his arm torn off. Cause there's a couple of similar ones, but it's LL Cool J and then he's just surrounded by all these female dancers. So, uh, I just, I, I kind of, I just appreciated the fact that they recorded that on, on one of the actual sets of the movie. And it's, again, it's titled deepest bluest. Does, does anybody want to hear the lyrics to deepest bluest? Yes. Got to. I'll try to give my most, uh, <clears throat> distinguished reading of deepest bluest. 
<clears throat> this reminds me of when um, Benedict Cumberbatch read those like R. Kelly lyrics on Jimmy Kimmel all those <laughs> years ago. I, I'll try my best. I'm no Cumberbatch though. Uh, my hat is like a shark's fin. Deepest, bluest, my hat is like a shark's fin. Deepest, bluest, my hat is like a shark's fin. Okay, all right. Deepest, bluest, my hat is like a oh. shark's fin. He does this three more times, by the way, so I'm just going to go ahead and get the rest of them. Man-made terror, hungry jaws of death. Y'all don't cross my depths. I'll pause your breaths. I cause you to sink down 40,000 leagues. Bleeding to death with no arms and short sleeves. Oh, wow. My world's okay. deep blue. Killers gotta eat too. Looking for human flesh to rip my teeth through. Other fish in the sea, but barracudas ain't equal to, to a half-human predator created by a needle. Jet black eyes, baby. They stare, you, they stare while you sleep. When your Titanic sinks, I'm the one you gon' meet. Hearing terrified screams, they surround my team. All you see is trails of blood. Even God won't intervene. Nightmares of darkness, my appetite is heartless. Even if we related, you eliminated regardless. In the deep blue underwater walls, half man, half shark, my jaws don't fall. Deepest, bluest, my hat is like a shark's fin. Times seven. Okay. Man, this is a long song. I'm going to have to pick up the pace a little bit. Sorry. Um, good, good grief. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Killer sworn to beast, swallowed them in flames. They switched my DNA, tripped me into Cool J. I can't fight the feeling. I'm born to kill prey. To survive an attack, there's only one way. Battle to the death, that's how sharks play. Weapons left behind, we duel in with the mind. You blind, crippled, or crazy, you're real easy to find. Struggling to flow with hemorrhages in your throat. Get Okay, I can't, I can't keep going. No, that's, that's, that's good. <laughs> I, I can't keep going. Yeah. I can't believe he wrote so many verses to this song. Yeah. By the way, after he said, deepest, bluest, my hat's like a shark's been like 12 more times, the last line is, yeah, DBS. I, which I assume is for deep blue sea, yeah. But uh, or wow. or deepest bluest single, yeah, maybe. I don't know. And <laughs> that's maybe I, I, I. You know what? I'm sure he he makes like a good, a very good living on NCIS. Yeah, because good for him. There's a just you know. A, a crazy amount of naval crimes that occur um, <laughs> to be able to manage like well, hey, three different like shows <laughs> for 20 years. Um, but this, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. That I would like, intense. I think it'd be great if his character on NCIS investigated what happened. Like if, if they, if they existed in the same universe as deep blue sea and they had to investigate what let's, happened there. Let's expand it even further. So NCIS investigates what happened to deep blue sea and we retcon that last <laughs> shark escaping and he hooks up with Godzilla and Kong. Yes. For the, for the fast and furious monster family. Yeah. I think, uh, with, with rampage and, and, uh, 
the other the other monsters. Oh boy, that was that was intense. I had it like a shark's fin. And and they did. Oh, uh, actually, one thing I did learn in in googling stuff about this movie for tonight is that they did make a Deep Blue Sea two and a Deep Blue Sea three. Um, Same no writers, by the way. Really? Okay. Yes. I didn't. I didn't go that that deep with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you talked about what was that line of dialogue we were just talking about, I can't remember. Samuel L's. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one about ice. I was yeah. like, who wrote this movie? Yeah. And so there were three writers and I went to see if there was anything like remotely terrible that we would have remembered. Yeah. Um, and I just found out that all three writers were on the sequels uh, as well. Oh, man. So, and they, yeah. they really missed out. Uh, Deep Blue Sea 2 could have totally been Deeper Blue Sea, but... Yeah, deeper blue sea and deepest blue sea. Yeah, it, and it, yeah, deepest bluest. Deepest bluest. <laughs> if they needed to make yes. a four, yeah. <laughs> deeper, deeper bluer deeper, and deepest yeah. bluest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a and and it would have fit with kind of fit with the whole you know like Fifty Shades of Grey kind of did that I think you know like Fifty Shades darker and then I don't remember what the third one was titled but yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, that was a real missed opportunity yeah. on their part there. Also, LL Cool J, uh, deliverer of the worst rendition of Psalm 23 I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. Um, on the way up through the through the elevator before the end there. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Thomas Jane wasn't bad in that movie, though. No, I, I, he was I, all right. I generally like Thomas Jane. He was, he was, uh, he was in the expanse. Um, mm. and you know, he had like, he did, I, I don't think I ever watched the Punisher movie, uh, all the way through. I think maybe I saw part of it. Um, but then he did, I think they did like some sort of fan campaign short film to try to get him back in like a better Punisher role or something like that. Um, that was actually pretty good. It was like him. I think if, again, this is one of the things I've got to double check, but I, I believe it's just him like going to buy a bottle of liquor and then something breaks out and it's just like him killing a bunch of people with that bottle of liquor. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Uh, I'll have to double check that. <laughs> That's pretty wild. Oh man, Deep Blue Sea. Yeah, he yeah he did a Punisher short called Dirty Laundry. I don't I don't remember. Maybe he was doing his laundry, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, trying to see if there's any, oh I I did look up. Um, I think this is just on. This is just from Google about. Um, let's see. Hang on. Some of the reviews or just like a line of the reviews. Um, let's see, this is from um, Brian Costello, Common Sense Media, says, this movie exists somewhere between Jaws and Sharknado with none of the quality of the former and none of the deliberate self-awareness of the latter. It's mm. probably, that's probably fair. Yeah, I think it has some self-awareness. 
And I think this is, well, this is the only movie of the three too, Jared, that has a lower audience score than the critic score. Oh, okay. It's got a 39% audience score. That's interesting. I admit I'm a, I'm a bit surprised by that. I am too. I am too. Yeah. Um, Empires Ian Nathan says, <laughs> "This is this is a very accurate quote. Deep Blue Sea is about giant sharks eating people, and that's exactly what you get. Hey, what you see is what you that's, get. That's that's an accurate <laughs> that's an accurate quote. Um, <laughs> this is an entertaining one as well from AV Club." Keith Phipps wrote, Deep Blue Sea, a sort of cross between aliens without the thrills and the Poseidon adventure without the camp compensations. It seems like somebody just tried to artsy up that first quote you said. Oh, yeah. Between Sharknado and Jaws. Uh, Doesn't deliver the killer shark versus A-list character actor thrills you crave. (laughs) (laughs) I just enjoyed that that hyphenated uh, genre right there. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, I appreciate it for, for what it is. You know, we don't, you don't get a lot of, uh, you don't get a lot of shark movies anymore. Um, they're few and far between. It was, there was one that I saw, uh, it's been several years ago now. Um, 40 meters down, I believe is what it was. Um, oh yeah. I've heard of that one. And that was good. 47 meters down. Maybe it was 47 meters down. I don't know. Or maybe that was, maybe 47 was the sequel. I don't know. Um, but it was, Oh no, no, no. I think I'm thinking of a different one because I saw one. Yeah, this looks different. Um, I think maybe I'm thinking of a different one. It's where this girl is out, is out like surfing. Oh, the shallows. I think the shallows. That's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. That one. Yeah. That one looked terrifying. That one was actually that was good. It was uh pretty good. I think maybe it kind of, it fell apart towards the end. Um, like <laughs> most, I think most of these shark movies are gonna have to fall apart towards the end when you start trying to come up with a way to kill a shark. It's just right. not gonna. It's not or gonna be like oh yeah, this in this, the water. <laughs> right. This makes perfect sense. Yeah, I will um, say in yeah. terms of campiness, uh, that Jason Statham movie, The Meg, The Meg, yeah, is pretty entertaining. Yeah. I can't remember. I saw it. It for some reason it was. I don't know. It, it was. I, I liked it okay. Um, yeah, but I forgot about the Meg too. I guess there's more when we when when we sit down and and talk about all the ones that are out there. But the Shallows, yeah, I saw the Shallows, and the Shallows was pretty good up until up until the end. But uh, yeah. I, I I don't know. There's something about you know. I talked about like you know where we've all talked about certain little niche movies that we like, like, you know, like I, I like driving movies around LA at night. I I like those kinds of movies. I like shark movies. There's just Mm -hmm. something about like knowing (laughs) that it's probably going to be awful, but still (laughs) being able to get excited. Like, Oh, maybe it'll be a good shark movie. I don't know. So (laughs) there was one I remember from a while back. I never saw it because I, I will say I was so disturbed by how real it seemed that I never wanted to watch it. It was um, Open Water. Oh, I've never seen it either. Yeah. yeah. I remember seeing the trailer for it. I'm right. like, nope, never, ever, ever, never, ever. Yeah. yeah. And then and then I got spoiled on how it ended, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that, that just doubly 
made me be like, mm, no, yeah, I don't know. But Gosh. yeah, you're you're right. That was that that was like too too scary. And I think they they made a second one with that one. And I think like both both premises were just like terrifying. <laughs> sure, <Yeah. laughs> sounds like it. Um, one more piece of trivia or alleged piece of trivia on Deep Blue Sea, and I'm and I'm and I'm done with it for my part. But I had heard this isn't some. I don't think this is substantiated, uh, or maybe I just made it up. But I thought I heard this somewhere that in sort of a nod to the Jaws franchise, apparently every method by which they overcame a shark was reflective of how they killed the main shark in each Jaws movie. Oh. Like, uh, I can't remember, like fire, explosion, and all that stuff um, was some sort of backhanded nod to each Jaws movie and how they overcame Jaws in every one of those. Okay, yeah. I'm like running that back through my mind. Um, I think that's right. Yeah, because there were three sharks. I guess if you throw out the fourth Jaws, because there were three sharks in this one. And so, yeah, one of them was Electrocution, mm-hmm. which was like the second Jaws movie. Yeah. And then and then the, the first one and third ones were both like different types of explosions, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, they could kind of play a little bit loose with that. I don't remember how they killed it in the fourth one. but um, You don't remember that one Jaws movie where Jaws got stuck in the oven and <laughs> they threw a lighter at him? <laughs> Maybe that was it. Maybe that was it. Deep Blue C4, Baby Shark. <laughs> no. The, uh, oh, man. Might as well. Uh, yeah. That could be the prequel. As, as baby shark. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> now I'm yeah. just imagining LL Cool J doing a remix of Baby Shark at the end of that movie. I wonder if there have been any NCIS Los Angeles episodes that dealt with a shark because it seems like he would have wanted that at some yeah. point to, yeah. to yeah. Like just get a nod to, to Deep Blue Sea or something. Bring up those residuals again. Yeah. You would you would think so. Uh, I'm I'm gonna Google that as we're wrapping up here. Yeah, I'm checking that out too. Gosh, but I'm not seeing anything. Let's see. <laughs> when I uh, by the way, when I tried to complete the phrase in Google, I put NCIS Los Angeles shark. It auto completed to NCIS Los Angeles jump the shark. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I just saw that too. So. So pulling the one up here, apparently, uh, let's see, I don't know when this was. This was, I guess it was maybe, yeah, it was just where they they found uh, in one episode there was a um, an NSA analyst was found eaten by a shark, but then it leads them to a cartel's money laundering. So it didn't uh-huh. didn't go in the shark direction. Oh, man, they really should have. Really should have investigated that shark. I mean, LL Cool J and Chris O'Donnell. If yeah, right. I mean, that's got, that's that's another LL Cool J working with a bird because he played Robin. <laughs> oh gosh, that's all. That's all I got for Deep Blue Sea. It was still <laughs> it was still entertaining though. Yeah, like hey, it's, yeah, yeah. I I find it entertaining, and I you know I kind of I I pushed it on. On you know because we were 
just looking for movies that qualified as rotten. And this one, you know, I think we said if you get to 60%, like 60% is not rotten. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And this one was at 59. So this was. <laughs> well, this was the weird. audience had, spo- as it turns out, the audience had spoken on this one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. we didn't know at the time. So, I mean, it's certainly qualified. Yeah. Um, you know, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, all of these films have entertainment value to them. And I mean, you know, that's everything doesn't have to be, you know, a social commentary or an Academy Award winning thing or anything. But, you know, films scratch a whole plethora of itches, you know, and I think uh, all three of these have a lot to offer in, in certain areas. And so you're not always in the mood for a Judas and the Black Messiah or something. You know, you might be more in the mood for a Deep Blue Sea or an Oscar or a, or a Hook or something. So I think it's uh, it's for that's for sure a, a useful and beneficial uh genre of movie to I say genre of movie like all three of these have something in common why well, is <laughs> uh, a, t- a type a type of movie appeal <laughs> that might work against type or something but yeah no, I'm sure. that's gonna be the weirdest genre ever like prohibition gangster shark fantasy children's they, fantasy they, i could i could see them all like you know had they come out in the same year like probably in some category competing against one another for a razzie yeah for sure i'm trying to th- imagine all three of them in the same row in a netflix recommendation screen <laughs> like what the caption would be above them like <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh my gosh yeah that's crazy <laughs> Uh, I, my head is in such a weird space right now thinking about these three movies and and putting them together it's it's almost as if you put three of your favorite dishes into the same meal and they just don't go together but you still love all three of them you know? <laughs> <I don't> know. <laughs> um so it's a weird it's a weird thing but uh yeah so you know you guys if you guys look around uh, you can certainly if you seek these films out they're not they're not hard to find um but i'd say hook is probably the most accessible one it's on netflix deep blue sea was made by warner brothers so it'll probably hop on hbo max um and at some point i'm sure if it's not already on there now but um so i'm sure it'll come around oscar i really don't know i I think I've, i've seen it i've seen it i think like on prime before um it it occasionally makes rounds but um if it ever comes around you'll probably hear me bring it up um nevertheless uh we want to thank you guys for joining us for this week for uh, i hate myself for loving you or for our three rotten rotten tomatoes films that we like nonetheless so uh i'd be very curious to hear uh, from our listeners, if there are any films that you unironically love, uh, despite mainstream criticism and why, um, please let us know, uh, in our, in our comments on our social media feeds, uh, let us know what films you enjoy, uh, that maybe, I don't know, maybe everyone else doesn't, uh, nevertheless, uh, we look forward to talking to you guys again, um, in the near future, uh, be on the lookout for, uh, episodes, uh, on some new material, uh, by the time, uh, well, 
I'm trying to think about our, yeah, by the time you hear this episode, the Falcon and Winter Soldier will have ended. We'll be coming up with an episode on that soon. And also uh, we'll be discussing the newest Mortal Kombat film in the next few episodes as well. So I'm sure that will have some inter- entertainment value as well. Speaking speaking of films in the past that maybe didn't get such great reviews, but people like anyways. I forgot so, to look up Mortal Kombat. I, I think it got surprisingly good reviews. I think but. the first one actually was reasonably well received because when it came out and since then, the stigma of video game films is just really terrible and it it ended up being like at least average and so it was like being graded on a curve. Yeah. You know, uh, but I don't know. I maybe Oh, prefer- no, no. I on Rotten Tomatoes actually looks like um, it got a 43% from critics and 57% from audience. I'm surprised. I would have, I, I could have done that. Maybe I should have done that one and I, well, which we'll talk about it. I'm sure as yeah. part of the, you well, know. certainly. Yeah, I think you're right. We'll, we'll draw some comparisons at least to the first film. I don't know how much I'll want to talk about the second one, but the, <laughs> <laughs> the second one is like a sore spot for me, you know, like, oh, yeah. Like I'll I'll have to consciously not talk about it just because it made me so angry. <laughs> you haven't quite summoned the power never. to to block it out of your memory as if it never existed yet. It, it, never, never. This will be like it'll be it'll be like the it'll be like the Trump administration of of movies for me. Just like it's just a, no. like a snap response where you bring it up and I'm just immediately like. <laughs> See <laughs> red with it. <laughs> oh my. Okay. Well, guys, we thank you for joining us again this week. Be on the lookout for those episodes to come, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna enjoy those topics in the near future. But uh, until then, and until next time, keep working on your night cheese. Y'all don't cross my depths, I'll pause your breaths.